that says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Verse 45, here's the purpose that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, the purpose of taking mistreatment gently and not fighting back and the purpose of doing good to those who mistreat you is to show them the love of God. He uses the example of creation and says, God gives rain and harvest and food and sunshine to everyone on the planet, regardless of who they are. doesn't matter how wicked or how good you are or think you are. God is equal in his grace and love that he lavishes upon all of us. And so he's saying, if we're going to be like God, we need to have our goodness that we show to people equal for everyone. Whether a person is wicked or good, he says, be good to all of them. Because God is good to all of us. That's his point. The goal is that we would be more like God. Then he goes on to say that if you're loving only those who love you, there's no reward in that. Or what do you gain from that? Verse 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? What do you gain from that? Right now, when we're talking about gain, this isn't talking about something that you could get as an advantage from another person because Typically, when you do good for someone else or when the average person does good for someone else, they expect to have good done to them in return. So in the world, there typically is a reward of more favor from a person when you're good to them. But that's not what he's talking about. The gain that we're looking for is a person getting closer to God because we were good to them when they were not good to us. That's reward. His point is, you're not bringing a person closer to the father. If you only love those who love you. That's his point. There is reward of more people coming into the kingdom. When you love those who do not love you. That's the reward we're looking for. That's the gain we're looking for because that is of eternal value. That's his point. If you only are kind to those who are kind to you, you don't add anything to the kingdom because everybody in the world does that all any sinner on the planet. Anybody who's an unbeliever on the planet can be kind to someone who's kind to them. But when you're kind to those who are unkind to you, you now bring gain to the kingdom. And that's the point. That's the gain we're looking for. Finishes by saying, then you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. This is another controversial verse because typically we say that none of us can be perfect. But Jesus actually says that if you master love, you will be perfect. There's a verse in 1 John, 1 John especially talks a lot about love, but it says that in chapter 2, verse 10, that a person who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. In other words, there is zero cause for you to sin if you love a person. If you loved every person that you encountered or thought about, you would never sin against them ever. If you truly loved them, that's the point. If you are thinking an impure or negative thought about a person that demonstrates, you don't love that person. If you did love them, you wouldn't do that or have that thought or entertain that meditation, whatever it might be. Right? So Jesus is trying to make morality 
simple. That's why he closes this chapter or this section with that verse. He's telling us that being morally perfect is all about loving people like God loves people and being good to them as he is good to them, caring about people as much as he cares about people. That's what perfection is in a nutshell. That's what we need to remember. If you always are focused on love, you're going to grow way more in your moral excellence and in your integrity because now it's about serving others rather than about an advantage to yourself. Amen. Okay. Now in chapter six, this is where he gets into applying obedience to God's word in situations where we are doing good for others or praying or fasting. That's what he discusses in this chapter. Remember, we just got done learning about how to be in the kingdom. We need to desire God, know our need for him, realize that we're lights in this world, realize that it's important to do what the word says, then make sure that we understand morally doing what is right is about our thoughts and our attitude and our words, not just our actions. Chapter six, he begins by talking about doing charitable deeds or doing good deeds. And this is where Jesus gets into detail about what we read in chapter five, verse 16, where he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Jesus in chapter five briefly mentions doing good works as to be a light that shines. And in chapter six, he's now breaking that down more. So after we've understood how to be morally excellent, now we're getting into how do you take it a step further and actually shine in a greater way. That's what chapter six is about. Okay. Verse one, he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your father in heaven. Now this is interesting because he just got done saying in chapter five, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And then in verse one of chapter six, he says, don't do your deeds to be seen by men. So it kind of seems like a contradiction, right? He just got done saying you should be seen. And now he's saying, don't do it to be seen. The, the point is the attitude that a person has. Chapter five is saying, if you want to shine and have a positive influence on the world, people should see in any situation that you are obedient to the word and that you are loving to others. But we're not doing good so that people can see us so that we can be praised for our good deeds. We're doing them out of love for others and out of love for God so that, like he says in chapter 5, 16, that they will glorify the father in heaven. In chapter six, he's talking about doing good so that you could be glorified by men. So you could be praised by people. Chapter five, he's saying it's doing good so that people will glorify God. So it's all about your motive. Doing good so that people see that good and glorify God versus doing good so that people will see me so that they'll praise me. That's the difference. Verse two, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. 
and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now we'll pause there. There's two principles in this paragraph. I touched on one already briefly, and that's not doing works to be seen by men so that you could have glory from men. That's the first thing. The second thing is don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's pretty obvious in terms of an attitude what it means to make sure you're not doing good deeds to receive glory from men. It's not about being seen by people. That's pretty straightforward. Not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing is a way of saying when you do something good. This is any act of obedience to the word, any form of service to others, anything that's loving to others. Don't be thinking about how this is going to benefit you when you're doing it. Just do it just because. That's it. We should be obedient to the word because we want to be obedient to the word, because we want to please God, because we want to glorify God, not because we believe we're going to get something out of it. This can even be personal growth. Anybody in the world that has any value for bettering themselves would say that they will be more disciplined or eat healthier or be more kind to people so that they can grow personally, so that they can see more self-improvement in their lives. But even that is a selfish motive. And there's a lot of believers that have that idea in their minds that, okay, when I'm doing this, when I'm going and serving this person, or when I'm going and you know having this Bible study with this person over here, this is going to help me grow if I do this. This will help me get better at teaching, whatever. Anytime you have that kind of attitude and one part of you is conscious of the personal gain that will come from this act of service, that, Jesus says, has no reward from your Father in heaven. Because now you're doing it rather than for a selfless purpose, for a selfish purpose. And there won't be as much growth from that. So he's saying, when you do good, any form of good, any form of obedience to the word. Two things. Number one, don't do it to get praise from people so that people will see you. And don't do it so that you can gain something. Those are the two principles. The alternative to those two wrongs, the, the alternative right to those two wrongs is, I want to do good so that God will be glorified. Period. That's it. It's about God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any of us. It's about God. And when we have that attitude, like in chapter five, Jesus says, then people will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven rather than trying to glorify you. Amen. That's important. Then he talks about prayer in chapter five. Oh, actually I should add, um, not being seen by men. This is not just in this life because there's a lot of people that will have a, what's really a false sense of modesty or a false humility and thinking, well, you know, I don't, I don't do my works here so that people on earth see me, but I know that I'll have praise in heaven or I'll have a greater reward in heaven. Or, you know, like for example, Jesus said to his 12 disciples that you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. Or John, James and John came to Jesus and said, Lord, grant to us that we will sit at your right hand and on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus actually rebukes that attitude because even though they're not saying they want glory from people here, part of them wants to have greater fame in heaven. 
right? We want to be known as the people that get to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom of heaven, right? So it's not just about not wanting people to see you here. It's about not wanting people to see you anywhere, whether it's in this life or the life to come. So that your attitude is, like I said, just to glorify God, period. There is no ambition to be seen, no ambition to be recognized, noticed, seen as great by people, none of that. We can't have any of that attitude. It's just we want to please God, we want to glorify God, period. Amen. Important to remember. Then he says in verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. We'll pause there for a moment. Just like good works, don't pray so that you are seen by people to be pious or spiritual in some way. Pray in secret. It should be just that you love God and you want to show that love to God in your prayer. But then he talks about assuming you're behind closed doors and you're praying in the secret place. He says, don't use vain repetitions. And then he says, they think that they will be heard for their many words. This is where he now talks about an attitude that people have towards God when they pray and not just the attitude they have towards people. If there's a bad attitude towards people and how you pray, that's in you want to seem spiritual, right? Like you attend a church or a Bible study and, and you want to be seen as spiritual. So you pray a lot and you, you, or you put a lot of scripture in your prayer or you want to sound spiritual like that. That's pretty straightforward. He's just saying, don't, don't do that. It's supposed to be about you and God. But now let's say you've mastered that part. You're not doing it to be seen by people, but now you're, you know, you're in your prayer closet, you're with God and you're not supposed to think that God will hear you for your many words. That's again about the attitude you have towards God. And if you sum it up, he's saying, don't pray because you think that what you say will make God want to hear you. Whether it's vain repetitions or trying to sound more eloquent in your prayer, he's just saying it needs to come from your heart. It needs to be from the depths of your being, what you groan for, what you care about and pray that in whatever words that you have. If you're ever praying with an attitude that, okay, I have to say this, this, and this in order for God to hear me, then that's a negative attitude. That's his point. Don't pray to sound spiritual to people and don't pray to sound spiritual to God. It's that simple. Pray from your heart, whatever it sounds like, if you mean it and you care, God hears it. That's that simple. Then he sums up how you pray and says, in this manner, therefore, pray in verse nine, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses.
Now, I think it's kind of ironic <clears throat> that Jesus just got done saying, don't use vain repetitions to sound spiritual, thinking that that will make God hear you more. And then we take this exact passage where Jesus tells us how to pray and turn it into a vain repetition and in thinking we have to pray this in order for God to hear us, <laughs> right? So obviously Jesus is not saying, use this verse to do exactly what I just told you not to do, okay? It's, that's not what he's saying, otherwise he'd be contradicting himself. This set of verses is a framework for prayer. It's about how you think about prayer, not exactly what you say. How you think, he starts with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's his way of saying the number one thing that should be on your mind is worshiping God and honoring God, period. Just like we just got done talking about how your good works are just about glorifying God. It's not about what you gain. It's not about what people see or how you are viewed. It's just glorifying God. It's the same thing in prayer. Your attitude should be, number one, I want to glorify God in, in my prayer. Then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is also about your attitude. When you pray, you should be reminding yourself when you think of it that God's will is done. I don't have to worry about anything. God is in control. God is the master. God is sovereign over all creation. I don't have to be worried about anything. I don't have to fear anything. He's king. Your attitude is, I want to glorify God and I need to be mindful of, I need to remember that God is in control and that he's the king. That brings a peace of mind that we should have as a result of prayer. Then he says, make requests. Give us this day our daily bread. This is basically a way of saying, God, I want to recognize you as the provider for every day of my life. Everything that I need, I'm going to ask you for it. Whether it's physical bread, the food that I eat, it could be the bread of life, what you need to learn in the word. It can be natural provisions like he talks about later in the chapter, like your clothing, it can be your housing, whatever it might be. He is reminding us that everything that you need for your life and for your survival, you should remember that God is the provider of those things and you should not neglect to ask him for those things on a consistent basis. Now, you guys are probably aware of where Jesus taught about how it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? He says it's harder for, a, or easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The reason why is because when you have money for everything, you're more likely to think that God isn't necessary because you can provide those things that you need for yourself. So you stop trusting in God because you trust in money. So when Jesus tells us in prayer, ask God to give you your daily bread, what you are doing is reminding yourself on a daily basis that whether you have money or not, God is your provider. And that maintains your trust in him. It's impossible to have sound faith in God if you stop praying for even your basic necessities. Because if you ever stop praying for that stuff, what are you trusting in at that point? It's definitely not God, because if you were trusting in God, you would pray, right? Trusting in God and maintaining that trust requires prayer to the Father, acknowledging him as your provider. So this is very practical. Even though you know, I'm going to get up in the morning, Monday through Friday, or whenever you work, and I'm going to go to work, and I'm going to make money, and I'm going to get my paycheck, and I'm going to pay my bills and get my groceries, whatever. Even though, yes, we do do those things. 
The important part is that we don't trust in what we can do or what we can gain to survive. He's saying trust in God while you do all those things to provide for your household. And the way you keep that trust in God is through your prayer. If you ever stop praying, you're no longer trusting in God. So work and keep praying. That's the point, right? Then he says in verse 12, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is where he establishes as he repeats, even in verses 14 and 15, that if you want your prayers to be effective and even heard, we have to be forgiving of other people. Even says that if you want to be forgiven, you must forgive other people. If you ever have ought against a person, if you ever think ill of another person, if you have negative thoughts about another person, remember what we talked about earlier in chapter five, that categorically that's murder, right? First John says, no murderer has any inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. So if you want to avoid the category of murder that the Bible says robs us of any experience of eternal life, forgiveness is how you fend that off. That's a solution to it. So if you have anger, you have bitterness or whatever towards a person, making a practice of forgiving them in your prayer is how you fend off that anger and therefore make your prayers more effective and experience more eternal life in your existence today. Now, oftentimes when we think of forgiveness to a person, we think of, okay, when I think of this person, I just got to tell myself that I forgive them, even though I might not feel it. I'm just going to keep saying it because I want to be faithful to God's command to forgive people. Now that's a step in the right direction, right? But Jesus teaches here that forgiveness is meant to be part of your secret place prayer with the father. Now, if you in everyday situations of life heartlessly try to say that you forgive a person, that's not a prayerful attitude. It's not a good attitude. But if you, when you prayed, when you shut your door and you want to be close with God, you want to glorify God, you want to experience that relationship with the father, imagine how meaningful it would be if your forgiveness of other people was so important that you wanted to make that part of your deepest intimacy with God. That would totally change how you think about other people and how you think about forgiveness. So we should make a practice of when we pray, thinking about who we have negative thoughts towards, inviting thoughts about that person into our prayer time and prioritizing forgiving them and correcting impure thoughts that we might have about said person or people. And that's going to be an important part of getting closer to God. That simple. Yeah, I really can't stress this enough. I I wish I had had more words to make it more emphatic, but it's just whether it's you or somebody you know, this is great counsel to give to a person. If you know somebody that's struggling with forgiving someone, remind them that Jesus said forgiveness is meant to be part of 
your deepest intimacy with God. When you pray, you're supposed to be forgiving people in that prayer. It's meant to be meaningful from your heart. And if you want somebody to have an easier time forgiving, challenge them with prioritize prayer and make forgiveness of those people a priority in that prayer time. That takes it to a whole nother level because now it's not just trying to forgive a person when I think of them. It's, this is an intentional, I go into my room, I shut my door and I'm going to have a prayer forgiveness session. That's a whole lot bigger than the way most people think of forgiveness. Amen. So if you know somebody or that's you, this is a great practice to have. And it really changes the game when it comes to, to uh, forgiveness. Then in verse 13, he finishes by saying, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. After you've glorified God, you remind yourself of his sovereignty, that he's in control. You've prayed asking for what you need in a day. You've forgiven people. Then he says, it's good to pray for yourself that you will be protected from any unnecessary temptation or hardship that comes from the devil. That's the point of this. Pray for what you need, pray for others, and just pray for protection. Ask God to protect you from whatever, whatever it is that you need to be protected from. This is another great reminder to us that Sometimes we can get arrogant in thinking that we're invincible or that nothing bad's going to happen. There's going to be no misfortunes. But he's saying we're supposed to be praying that those things don't happen, which again, just like your daily bread, keeps your mind centered on the fact that God is your protector. God keeps you from trouble. And that's a necessary attitude to have. I'll make one more comment about the forgiveness because in 14 and 15, he goes on to say that if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father in heaven forgive you. There's important to, it's important to understand the context of this in terms of the audience. Jesus is talking to people who are still under an old covenant. They're under the law of Moses still at this point. And these people are not born again. They're, they're not New Testament believers. So no, none of them, in essence, are saved yet. Later in the New Testament, the letters of the apostles, when they're talking to believers, people who are saved, Paul says that God in Christ has forgiven you in Ephesians. And then in Colossians, he says that God has forgiven you of all trespasses, all of them. So a believer is already forgiven of all of their sins, every last one. And so if you tell a believer, if you don't forgive this person, God won't forgive you. Well, God already forgave them. So he's not going to unforgive them and then forgive them again after they forgive, right? It doesn't work that way. You're, you're already forgiven. The point for a believer is that if there's a point in your life when you start to get bitter and you neglect forgiveness for people, number one, it's going to hinder your prayer. We just talked about that. Number two, it'll harden your heart and endanger you and potentially your salvation because forgiveness has a way of what Hebrews says, uh, it causes many to be defiled because of how quickly it hardens people. So not forgiving is dangerous to your salvation and to your security as a believer because it can poison your faith. 
But if there's ever a day when for a time you don't forgive a person, God doesn't take away your forgiveness and then give it back once you forgive. Because then that would be getting un- being saved, then getting unsaved, and then saved again. And that doesn't happen, right? You can't get born again again, right? So if you're a believer, you're forgiven. Don't worry about that. The point is, if you're not forgiving, be concerned because of how much it endangers and hardens you. That's what you have to keep in mind. If you're talking to an unbeliever who is not saved yet, and therefore they do not yet have their sins forgiven, forgiving others is a necessary part of their salvation. Because Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you're not turning from sin, then you can't come to Christ. Therefore, forgiving somebody is an act of repentance that is part of the faith they put in Christ to be saved. Another way of saying it is that if a person does not value God's forgiveness for other people, then how could they value that forgiveness for themselves? They are not going to be able to receive God's forgiveness if they won't forgive someone else because they're in, in essence, when they won't forgive someone else, they're saying that that person doesn't deserve forgiveness. But that person is just as human as they are. So if they don't deserve forgiveness, then neither do you or neither does the person not forgiving. And therefore, they're completely cutting themselves off from receiving. Because they don't, they, they don't believe it's deserved in the sense that they don't believe they should receive it if they won't forgive someone else. So if you're talking to an unbeliever, they do need to forgive if they're going to come to Christ. It's that simple. If you know somebody who's not a believer, but they're interested in God and you know, they have a lot of bitterness, that person, especially it is of utmost importance when it comes to repentance that you teach them about forgiving other people. Because if they are not willing to do that, they can't receive forgiveness from God for themselves. Make sense. So that's how that's applied when it comes to believers and then unbelievers. Okay, we'll get moving forward. We're almost done here. Moreover, this is verse 16. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, of course, he talks about fasting. Now, I think this is interesting because typically most believers have great understanding of the necessity to do good for others. They understand the necessity of praying. But how many believers prioritize fasting? Not as common, if at all. There's, I mean, probably 99% of believers that you talk to, fasting doesn't even their mind when it comes to a necessity for their faith. But Jesus groups fasting together with good deeds and prayer. He makes this of equal importance. Good doing good is of benefit to others. Prayer and fasting go hand in hand in terms of living a life that glorifies God. And that will bring growth to you spiritually as well. So If you value doing good and if you value praying, you should value fasting just as much as the others. That's one thing to keep in mind. And the second thing when it comes to fasting itself is he says, don't do it to be seen by men. Because fasting is not about 
gaining praise from others for your spirituality. Fasting is about glorifying God in your time and being the most effective for God's kingdom in your prayer, in your mind, in your words, in your actions. Fasting helps to make all those things more glorifying to God. It's that simple. Then in verse 19, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Or excuse me, treasure on earth. Yeah, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth doesn't mean don't have savings. We are, there's plenty of other scriptures that talk about it. We are supposed to be responsible with our money. Okay. This doesn't mean you shouldn't have money. Okay. What this does mean is that you shouldn't live your life to accumulate wealth for yourself. We should be doing everything and using everything that we have for God's kingdom. So if you're laying up wealth for the benefit of God's kingdom, then you would be having treasure in heaven as a result of that lifestyle and attitude. But if you're laying up wealth just for you, and it's just about your personal gain, that's what Jesus is speaking against in this paragraph. And there's a parable that Jesus says in the gospel of Luke, where he talks about a man that had built a storehouse and it became full. So he says, I will tear down my storehouse. I'll build a bigger one and I'll fill that thing with all my wealth. And then I'm going to sit in a lawn chair in my yard and boast about how much money I have. And then God said, you fool, you didn't know that tonight your life would be required of you. And then whose wealth will that be when you have perished? Right? So again, that, that kind of attitude is someone who just wants to build wealth just so they can build wealth to say that they have a lot, lot of money and then just enjoy it for themselves. Right? That's what Jesus is speaking against. When he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, this is a lot more practical than we often assume. And he says, the difference is that rust does not destroy, thieves can't steal it, moth does not destroy it, then says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now, to sum this up of how you lay up treasure in heaven, we have to think about what will be destroyed in the end. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, like verses 10 through 15 or 16, that passage says, everything on the planet, including the planet itself, will be destroyed by fire. All the infrastructure of this world, everything that we build materially on this planet will be destroyed. Everything. And the Bible says the only thing that will survive that fire are souls. The human spirit is the only thing that survives. And it says about believers that if a man in his works has nothing of eternal value, all of his works will be burned up, but he himself shall be saved yet. So as through fire, right? So the only thing that outlasts this fire of God is the human spirit. That is absolutely it. The only thing that can, that you can take to heaven 
are other spirits, as in other people. That's the only thing that you can take to heaven with you. So, laying up treasure in heaven basically means more people getting saved. That's all that it is. So, if you want to lay up treasure in heaven, that means you want to help other people get saved. Because those human spirits you will take with you, those human spirits will survive that fire. Right? Now, if you use your money well, since we're talking about money, Jesus says in Luke 16, you can use it to win souls. Because generosity is one way that you can do good to show the love of God to your enemies so that they will glorify your father in heaven. That's salvations, right? There's, you're, you're not going to be able to do much good if you don't have any money. It's just that simple. If, if you have no money, you don't have tools. You don't have resources. You, you don't have as much opportunity nor advantage for the kingdom if you don't have any money. Money is just one of many things that you can use, though. You, of course, have your body, your time, your words, what you say to people, so on and so forth. It's, this is all meant to just say that everything that you have, you should want to use it and steward it well so that you can use it to get more people saved. If it's money, have it so that you can do good to others to bring them to Christ. If it's your body, have a strong body so that you have the energy and strength to do good for others so that they can get saved. You all have time. If it's time, use your time well so that you have more of it to do good for others to get them saved. It's that simple. That's how you lay up treasure in heaven. Getting more people saved. Amen? Now, if you want to do all this well, I love what he talks about in verse 22. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I love this. Lamp of the body is the eye. Now, your body or specifically your brain and your heart receive information from what you look at. This, of course, includes your ears, but especially your eyes, what you look at, what you focus on, what you watch, what you meditate on, what you read, so on and so forth. And he says that your eye determines whether you have light and darkness in your body. Now, light and darkness is a way of saying good or evil. What is of God versus what is of the devil. And your body, the Bible says, is powered by your spirit. The body without the spirit is dead. So your brain and heart, your body, which receive information from what you see, is made alive by a spirit, your spirit. And the spirit realm is where ultimately good or evil exist. There's spiritual wickedness, the Bible says, and then there's the spirit of God and your spirit. So if your body, your physical being is powered and influenced by either good or evil, and your eye 
determines the quality of your body, then he's saying your eye is, is a spiritual power. What you choose to look at, what you choose to read and what you choose to focus on is a gateway for either the good in the spirit or the evil in the spirit to affect your body. So if a person's body is full of energy and positivity from the kingdom, then that shows that that person is good at managing what they see. But if there's a lot of negativity in your body, you don't have any energy, you don't have life, you just feel ugh all the time, check what you focus on, what you read, what you watch, all of the above. You want life and godliness and light in your body your eye is of chiefest importance to make that happen. And then to finish this out, he says, no one can serve two masters in verse 24. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Skip to verse 28. Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, and your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. After talking about your eye, he talks about your attitude, and whether you have worry in your heart or mind or not. And he just got done saying that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. That's what unrighteous mammon is. Mammon is money. That's what the word means. You can't serve God and money. Now, right after saying you can't serve God and money, he says, therefore, do not worry about your life, what you eat or what you drink. What you eat and drink, you buy with your money. When a person worries about money, what they're really saying is they, wor they worry about whether they're going to be taken care of, whether they're going to have food and drink and clothing for survival, right? That's what money, that's what money does for us. As a basic necessity, it, it provides you what you need for survival, right? So that means that worrying about what you'll eat, what you drink, what you'll put on is serving money. You can't serve God and money. Therefore, don't worry, because if you're worrying, you're serving money because that's what you're focused on rather than serving God, which in essence is being free from worry because you trust in him as your provider rather than yourself, right? Then he says, worrying is not going to add anything to you. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Now, as a point of clarification, he is not saying Spend all your time in your prayer closet or only do street evangelism or be a missionary and leave everything behind, pack your bags and go to China. 
<clears throat> that is not seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, maybe for a person, it might mean that, okay? Seeking first the kingdom so that everything you need will be added to you. Just like we talked about how you lay up treasure in heaven earlier, simply means prioritize the kingdom's cause with everything that you do and everything that you have, and then you will be provided for. So if you use your money well, the way the Bible says to, that would be seeking first the kingdom with your money. If it was seeking first the kingdom with your body or your time, it would mean doing what the Bible says to do with your body or with your time. You're considering what God says about how to use your life and in obedience to what God says, you are seeking first his kingdom in whatever you do. And that's what's important. If, and this is where there's another paradox here, if you just do what your flesh wants with your money, with your body, with your time, then you will worry and you will lack and it will be bad. Because he says the Gentiles are the ones that seek these things and worry about these things. People that don't know God are worried all the time about their money and what they want to eat and what they want to drink and what they want to wear. That's an unbelieving characteristic. They're not seeking first the kingdom. And so he says, if you want to be not that, the opposite of that, the alternative is that you would prioritize seeing other people saved and doing with your resources what helps people get saved. And because God knows you're prioritizing his cause, he will bless your efforts and make sure you're always taken care of so that you can keep doing work for his kingdom. That's the point. If God knows you're doing well for his kingdom, he'll make sure you always have more and more so that you can keep doing good for his kingdom. But if you're not doing good for his kingdom with your time, with your money, with your body, why would God bless that? Because in doing so, he would be enhancing darkness, doing more for the cause of evil rather than for the cause of his kingdom. God will add to you what you need to empower what you do for his kingdom. He will not bless or add to you what will cause you to do more for the kingdom of darkness. So if you want to be blessed and not have to worry, prioritize what he wants, which is other people being saved. Use your money, use your time, use your body for what will make you better at laying up treasure in heaven. And that is more souls coming into the kingdom. And that's what it means to serve the kingdom. And that's what, mean, what it means to seek first the kingdom and everything that you do. And that is Matthew 5 and 6. We'll finish with that.